You're listening to the Detroit Love and Arms podcast, a show about mental health and the things that make us human. We'll be sharing stories and conversations about topics we tend not to talk about, like depression, addiction, self-injury, and suicide. Each week, you'll be hearing stories from some amazing people. We'll talk about how mental health has shaped their journey, and you'll continue to hear ways how you can carry this conversation into your community. We hope you'll not only connect to the episodes and conversations in a meaningful way, but we hope that maybe this podcast will make it easier for you to have conversations in your own life. I heard someone say recently in conversation, you don't know what you don't know. And it struck me that so many of the stories we've shared on this podcast or on the Trait Love on Her Arms blog confront this idea in some way or another. It feels like a common thread as we come to understand our own stories and how it can create a huge barrier to getting help. It was this challenge that our guest Joelle Daniels confronted early on, growing up in the Bronx. Joelle is a writer, poet, actor, MC, and a new title he's most proud of, Dad. Joelle and I talked about why it was so hard for him to talk about mental health growing up. He shares his experience with depression and suicide ideation, and why he's grateful that he called a suicide hotline. I really love talking to Joelle and hearing his take on writing, creativity, as a way to really give space for this mental health conversation to exist and be present across all of the different parts of his identity. A quick warning on this episode, there is some strong language used, so please consider that before listening. So, Joelle, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners who might not be familiar with you and your work, would you just tell us a little bit about who you are and and start with uh, your story? So, I'm Joelle, rhymes with Noel. I am a 35-year-old father to a now three-year-old because her birthday is today. No way, really? Yeah, today is her birthday. And I, I didn't think about it when we scheduled this, but her birthday's today, and today is also the one-year anniversary of the book that I wrote, book of poetry and prose that I wrote and dedicated to her. So it's like, it's a whole bunch of great things happening today. So Wow. It's an honor for you to spend today with us then. I mean, the, the honor is mine, like, honestly. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm a storyteller, for lack of a better word, I guess. Um, writer, performer, author. Uh, so when I say performer, actor, MC, I'm a father, I'm a black man. Yeah, I feel like those pretty much encompass the things that probably are most important to me. When people do ask you kind of your story with mental health, where where do you begin? Where does that start for you? I think it depends on who's asking. Yeah, okay. I tend to live below the surface as much as possible. Uh, So like a general question of like, how are you tends to be wherever I am. So if I'm not feeling mm. well, then I'm going to, I'm going to answer with a corresponding response. I think when, when people generally ask me that question, that story starts, I guess, with me starting therapy. Now, granted, I'm not in therapy now, but I was in a long-term relationship. And after that relationship dissolved, one of the kind of requirements I was given following the end of that relationship from my former partner, who's now a very good friend of mine, was I should probably see a therapist. Okay. How long ago was that? About five, five and a half years ago. Okay. And that journey started uh, a deeper conversation for me about my own mental health, which then led me to have more open conversations with other people surrounding their own mental health, which then also forced me to dig a lot deeper into my past experiences with with my own depression and with my own anxiety um, and some of my own trauma from my past uh, and then kind of going from there. But it generally starts with therapy. Okay. I want to actually go to the beginning of what you said because I think that's probably the experience a lot of people have is you go through something and then while you're doing the work or healing, you actually start to have language or a way to think about your previous experiences. And I'm kind of curious if you could kind of share a little bit about like the things that led up before you got to a counselor? Like when you were growing up, were there things that you could identify were like, that's me struggling with mental health before I had the language to put it there? I kind of want to dive into that. Yeah. uh, Man, we're just going in. I love it. (laughs) So, I mean, I think growing up as a 
black male in America, one, and then growing up as a black male in the Bronx, New York, during like the crack era of the 80s and the Reagan era of the 80s, informed a lot of how I, um, a lot of the language that I'm able to use now with regards to mental health comes from me not having access to that language or even really being able to recognize what what some would consider like PTSD, right? Like you, you grew up in an environment where you're seen there's constant addiction. Like my father, my father um, is a paranoid schizophrenic. And so, you know, my father fought in Vietnam and like there are stories that people who grew up in the neighborhood know of like my dad in the streets naked, like, you know, shouting army salutate, like chants and things of that nature. And so, you know, but you grow up at the same time, you grow up around, you know, like you grow up around murder, you grow up around hand-to-hand drug sales, you grow up around like physical violence, whether that be from people within their own community or or police state sanctioned violence. And so you you grow up seeing these things and it becomes your norm. Like I don't want to say you we become desensitized to it, but it definitely becomes a part of the, the the way we move about in the world. And well it doesn't not have impact on you. You just like you said, it becomes the thing you grow to expect and your body calibrates to that and that experience, right? Absolutely. And so prime example, you know, like I'm kind of back in the community now and literally this happened yesterday. I just wanted to go grab some pizza and <laughs> there were these two men shouting at each other and I'm ordering my pizza, pepperoni, I'm two slices, pepperoni slice, regular slice. And they leave the store and then I hear like, a, oh, and I turn around and just one of the men is like punching the other dude in the face. And so two things, someone calls the police. I stay around to kind of just like assist with like as far as being able to answer any questions or whatever. And the thing that was most interesting to me was people's response in the environment to it, which is like kind of going about your normal routine. Like maybe you see someone who's bloody on the floor, on the ground, and you'll look and you'll walk by. There was a person that was in the pizza shop when the commotion started and after who was still eating this pizza who hadn't really engaged. And it amazes me how we do, we become accustomed to certain kinds of elements in our community, um, especially especially in that community specifically, the community I grew up in. But like between the physical violence, sexual trauma, there's a whole lot of things to unpack that I didn't know how to unpack or thought that I should be trying to unpack until relatively recently. When I say recently about, we're saying like five, six years ago. So you grew up in the Bronx and then you like, tell me a little bit more about just like the transitions that you've been through. Cause it sounded like you more recently moved back to that area. Correct. Okay. So growing up in the Bronx, I go to public school in the Bronx. I wind up um, going to LaGuardia high school, which is um, the performing arts high school in New York. Like most people know it as the fame school. And okay. that was significant for me a because it was in Manhattan and I had never actually traveled outside of the Bronx, maybe twice in my entire years leading up to high school. Um, wow. I'd been outside of New York, granted. But I mean, like as far as like intercity traveling, I'd never really had to leave the Bronx. Um, and it was also the first time that I had direct contact with people who didn't look like me. Like I had white friends in high school, didn't have white friends growing up. The only time I actually interacted with white people were people in positions of power, so teachers or police. It was the first time that I, I, I encountered like the LGBTQ community um, because what one thing that was really cool about LaGuardia was that it was such an open space for people to identify it as whomever they chose to. Part of that kind of shaped how I started to see the world. It was the first time I started listening to jazz. It's the first time I listened to like Bob Dylan. Like I had people, it, it, it changed how I view things culturally. I can't tell that story without also though um, recognizing Miss um, Ann Petrowski, who was my English teacher in middle school from from seventh to eighth grade, and she was our drama teacher in sixth grade. And it was Miss Petrowski who said, "Like Joel, you should audition for Laguardia. I think you're going to get in." And Laguardia, I will say, probably saved my life because I'd always been involved in the arts, but it was kind of like in the way you're given art in school as mm-hmm. like a thing to do, so you have to choose an elective as opposed to like seventh and eighth grade, even though it was an elective, like we were putting on shows in school and I was taking it really seriously. Yeah, You know, like some people do shows, but like I really wanted to do this thing. And then high school comes along and I'm around all these people who like were groomed in these schools that other famous New York City acting kids went to and whose parents had a shitload of money and like they were going to Broadway shows all the time and I didn't. I just kind of was the kid who had a really active imagination and liked performing. 
And that gave me the platform to do that. So acting was probably the first kind of creative uh, content that you were working with or that you were creating? I mean, is that... I mean, kind of. I mean, you know... Were you writing at that point? Yes. So, you know, it's like chicken or the egg for me when it comes to like arts and creativity. Like I have a, there's a a friend I used to have in elementary school who found me on Facebook and he was like, Joel, I don't know if you remember, like in third grade, I would write him rhymes that he would give to girls. Oh, that's sweet. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, like that was, I was that person for as long as I knew how to write, Lindsay, like put a sentence together. I was writing, like writing not for school, but like horrible poetry. And (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like I, Art, art was kind of like my safe haven away from all the other shit that was happening. Yeah. So so bring me up to speed. Um, you're in high school. And what does that, like, what do you understand about your mental health journey in those years? Sounds like it would be a big transition to that school. Yeah. Like you're talking about. Yeah, it was. It, it, it was. And it was the first, like my mom was taking me to school for like the first, I think, week um, while I, when, when I started high school. And you know, it's it's a new environment for me. I'm learning like methods of acting, something I hadn't tackled before. I'm around I'm around white people. I'm around white students, and it, that's kind of awkward for me. And trying to fit in, and and to be fair, trying to keep the the the, the street mentality and attitude that I was reared on and grew up with, in combination with like learning the Stanislavski method and being around cats who again who weren't maybe listening to hip hop, but they were listening to like Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. And they were reading all these, they were reading Walt Whitman. And I'm like, who the fuck is he? Like, and granted, it's not like I didn't learn these things in school. I just didn't care about them. Like my poets were Nas, my, my poets were like Jay-Z. Like those are the people that I, I leaned on for like lyrical inspiration when it came to writing. And so I didn't look at it at the time as an experience that needed to be looked at through the lens of talking about now but when you ask me that question yeah it was a heavy transition for me especially as a teenager right like coming into this new environment um and i think there was a lot of learning there was a lot of fear um but there was also a lot of unpacking the things that i had been taught about who i was supposed to be at that mm-hmm. time and, you know and then learning how i like who i could be and a lot of that centered around race around my sexuality just kind of also trying to figure out who, for whatever reason, trying to figure out who I was going to be, which is like, so like, we put this on our, our children so early. Like you, like the whole idea of going to college is so that you figure out what you want to do at like 18. Like yeah. that doesn't make any sense. And so at 14, 15, trying to discover who I am and what I want to be and what I'm going to do and how fucking difficult it was, Yeah, but glorious at the same time. Cause like LaGuardia also, again, like change and save my life. Yeah. Do you feel like in that transition or in that season that you had any real way to talk about those things? I think a lot of young people and maybe even people listening, like it is such a, it feels like no one's ever done the thing you're doing. Um, But I'm curious if you had any support or if there was any outlets within the school to kind of just process that and to, and to figure out what that was, or was it, did you kind of do it on your own in your own way? I had to do it in my own way, Lindsay, and, I'm, and thank you for asking that question because I don't want to keep bringing race into it, but it speaks volumes to why because that might might have been available in mm, school, yeah, you know, but I wouldn't have known, right? And not to say that the school wasn't trying to reach out to me, but the stigma within the black community surrounding mental health, especially at that time, like you were crazy, like you were either crazy or you weren't. There were no in betweens. There were no conversations about depression, anxiety, like depression. It's like you just pick yourself up. Like if you're sad about something or some shit happened to you that you don't like, suck it up, keep it moving. Like that's what you're you're reared on. Like that's what mom was reared on. Like like oh everything is okay even when it's not. You yeah. know um, like how do you deal with heartbreak? How do you deal with rejection? How do you deal with like loss and like loss of your of your youth? Like loss of like the like the unrequited attention of the girl that you're digging or the boy that you like or whatever the case might be. Um, like there's no there was there were no conversations around that. Um, and if people were having that conversation, I wasn't having it with them. Yeah. So there was never anybody who just said like, "Hey, you need to talk with someone in those years." Or what you're saying is, I guess, more so is that there just wasn't there wasn't an attitude that that's even a possibility. Like that's not within the framework of what is acceptable to even kind of 
go there. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense. And it's more of the latter. And I think, and it's something I keep talking about a lot, which is like, we can give people language, but if they don't know how to access that language, it means nothing. And so I didn't have the language or access to it. You know, like we weren't having, I wasn't having conversations about mental health. I don't even think to have the conversation about it. You know, like it wasn't as if I hadn't maybe seen stuff on the news or in media or whatever the case might be. But this is still early internet days. We're talking, I started high school in 1997. And so I'm still learning how to use the internet, let alone have a conversation with a person about what I'm feeling like today. Or what does that even mean? You know, like it wasn't like people weren't crying in the hallways when when traumatic things happened, but we were never unpacking the trauma. We weren't having conversations surrounding the trauma or the events that led that would lead up to it. You know, it was just it's, it was a thing. It was a thing that happened, and then you just kind of keep it moving from there. I kind of want to camp out here a little bit longer because I think this is really significant, um, and I'm I'm really grateful that you're sharing this. I'm curious what. What other lies or and we kind of tie the lies of what people believe about mental health, what and and that can just kind of be encapsulated with stigma, right? Like these are the lies we believe. What other lies? I mean, you say the dichotomy of just like you're crazy or you're not. Like what other things have you noticed or kind of been able to pinpoint um, maybe in your community or in your childhood that you would say, yeah, that's that was stigma acting in my life right there. Like are there other ones you can like identify? When I think about the stigmas, I think about I think less about the stigmas and more about how we relate to mental health in the community that I grew up in. Like there's a certain way that depression looks, right? Like that and I'm not saying that's what it is, but I'm saying like that's what the community will tell you. Like mm-hmm. if you are depressed and it and it looks this way and like your your mental health looks this way. So like my father's a paranoid schizophrenic, but he also quote unquote looks the role, right? Mm, so okay. my father's the person who was picking cans from the garbage and like he'd bring them home. And granted, he was collecting for money, but my father was also an alcoholic. And so my father would look disheveled in the streets. And it's like that very token, this is what a crazy person looks like, quote unquote. Um, as opposed to really trying to navigate the layers, the, the real contextual layers of what it means to suffer from a mental health illness. And how does that look? Um, and how does that look? And how does it feel for each individual person? Um, I think we've gotten into a habit of dictating what a person's sanity looks like and what it comes across as, especially because in this day and age, I think everyone feels like they can be they can be a psychiatrist because they have access to WebMD or because mm-hmm. since we have conversations about mental health. It's like, oh yeah, I know what depression looks like. Or I know what anxiety looks like. Like comparing other people's anxiety and depression to someone else's, like I'm on, I'm on Lexapro. And so like, you know, like I'm on this and you're not on that, or you're not taking any psychotropic medication. So what does that mean? As opposed to like trying to really dissect and giving room for people to dissect what it means to suffer from a mental health illness, diagnosed or undiagnosed, right? But again, that's not language I had access to. And not until, again, maybe five, six, seven years ago. But that's that's part of, I think, the stigma that we that, that we attach to it, that it has to look a certain way. And if it doesn't look that way to a person, then it, then it doesn't validate that person's experience. Yeah. And, which is everything to do, especially for like people who like growing up the way that I grew up, where you didn't have conversations about depression. You were either sad or you were mad. You know, like we the, the mm-hmm. very generic ways that we label uh, an emotion that doesn't give enough room for the complexity of the emotion yeah. and the feeling. Thing, or you know? or knowing that you need help with this because it's the sadness has now turned into weeks or months and days right. and now it's debilitating and you and you you don't know why. Right. <laughs> um, so you can't ask for help you don't know that you need. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then how do you learn? how to know that you need the help. And I struggle with it so much because it's like, how do you get, how do we get certain people to the place when they can recognize the thing as a thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like how can you know how to label a thing if you don't know what that label is? And so you try to fix other things to it. Or you try to fix it in other ways, alcohol, you know, like any sort of like opioid drug dependence. Um, and again, not not to label anybody who is, who is going through that process or, or, or their journey, but the idea of not having a language to find other ways to, substantiate the feeling without necessarily claiming it as a thing because you don't have you don't have the language for it 
So we've talked a lot about pretty important and formative part of your life, but where does your story go after high school? I was kind of scared shitless of attacking the world as an actor. Um, and so I felt like going to Temple University was going to give me the well-roundedness that I wanted as a human. But then also, I didn't have to sign with an agent. I didn't have to go on auditions because as good as I knew as I was as a talented actor, I was still scared shitless of it, especially at 18. So I go to Temple University. I leave Temple after two years, A, because I just was not diligent enough as far as, far as pain, like following up on like financial aid, student loan stuff or whatever. So I come back to New York. I start doing more theater, spoken word stuff when I'm back in New York. I'm also working a retail job at that time. I make a shift from retail to doing community case management for the HIV AIDS community. That experience was great. There was a rough period of time when I was doing retail and that job, and it was driving me it, it was driving me mad essentially because I wasn't able to be creative because I didn't have the time to do so. I meet my partner, the same partner I mentioned earlier, who then um kind of brought up the conversation of therapy to me. But I meet her. We moved to Florida for about nine months where I'm a roofing technician. <laughs> um, we leave Florida. I moved to Atlanta. We're in Atlanta for two, about two months or so. I couldn't find work. We come back to New York. We bounce around from the Bronx to the Upper East Side to Brooklyn. I'm still pursuing like this rap career of mine. So I'm doing a lot of shows. Um, I'm getting my music posted on blogs and other, on, and other websites and cool music publications. Around the same time, I start working with the forensic population, um, which, is, which is also important because that was the first time I was really introduced to, to real language surrounding like diagnoses surrounding um, mental health. Because I was working with um, brothers and sisters that were getting released from Rikers Island who suffered from DSM-4 diagnoses. Um, and they were getting diagnosed while they were at Rikers. And so outside of my father, who I didn't really have much and very limited um, time to like speak to and with because he just wasn't around enough, I'm sitting across from men and women who are dealing with taking psychotropic medications, who are seeing psychiatrists once they come home from incarceration. Some who had diagnoses prior to the incarceration, um, a lot who didn't have diagnoses until they actually were on the island, um, and then kind of helping them walk through that process, which in turn also allowed me the opportunity to kind of look at some of the things that I was dealing with um, from a distance, I think. So I spent about seven years doing that. Um, and it wasn't until about two years ago where I made the transition to to like advertising marketing. One, because I knew I was expecting a child. Um, so I was like, I, I need to make more money, to be quite honest. You're a writer now and you write and you've actually even written a blog for To Write Love um, about your experience with depression. And so when does writing become something that's more than something you love and a passion and it becomes part of your career? When people ask me about my creative process and my journey, and like some, sometimes I'll get the question, like, when did you become a writer? Mm-hmm. And then I have to say it's a two, two-part answer because I've been writing since I already knew how to put a sentence together that conveyed some level of emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll say like first, second grade. But as a professional writer, I didn't, I, it didn't start until about 2013 when I won, I, I won a poetry grant. I'd submitted a manuscript of some poems I'd written. And that was the first time I'd, I'd received monetary compensation mm. for my art, which I have to shout out my mom because Linda T would always say, Joel, you're not going to make any money using your name. Because I had a rap name. I had a rap name that I was going by. My mom would be like, you're not going to make any money using that name. I gave you the name that I gave you for a reason. Mm. So until you start doing that, and I can laugh about it now, but what my mom was talking about, what she didn't know because she doesn't have the language for it, right? But she was talking about owning the truth and yeah. like owning the truth of who you are. And granted, Nothing wrong with having a pseudonym, with having an artist, rap name, whatever the case might be. But I think for me, it was important to notice that I was living under this name because I wasn't stepping into the courage of myself yet. What happened was once I started going by Joel Leon Daniels, because that is the name that I have, like the opportunity started coming because I started owning my truth more. And so after high school, I was still writing. I was There was this poetry website called Starlight Cafe, and I would just write all these endless love poems mm. on. Oh, <laughs> that was so bad. Um, <laughs> but like that was part of, the, part of the process, part of the journey. Um, I spent a lot of time on that and going to the New York Poetry Cafe in New York and trying to really like hone my craft as a spoken word performer and artist and storyteller um, in combination with like pursuing a rap career. So like going into the studio, recording songs, making projects, all that other stuff. But 
it wasn't until 2015 when outside of like the poetry writing, I had started pursuing writing as an essayist. And Medium.com was a really big support in that because it, it gave me as a writer a platform without a middleman. Yeah. So it wasn't about me submitting to the New York Times and or to the Atlantic and then getting rejected, which I think is also a part of the process and a needed part of the process. But it allowed me to convey these personal narratives out and like put them out into the world without an editor. And granted, I was self-editing. You know, I'm a writer. I, I For the most part, I'm good with that. But what it allowed me to do was just take the the raw emotion of the thing, whether that be race, sexual trauma, um, dealing with religion, fatherhood, um, mental health, and put that out to the world. And that's kind of how I grew my my, my brand and how I grew my audience as, as a writer was through medium.com and through the support of awesome publications such as your own and um, like Blavity and, and other spaces that were providing me the opportunity to share my story and then also share my art. So do you feel like not having to prove the worth or the value of your words like gave you more freedom with with medium? Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Or Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like being able to have that freedom, have that time to kind of really sit with like the thoughts without having those thoughts be without having to attach anything to them. Because when I'm, you know, when you're submitting to these other publications, there's also this, like, there's that need for, um, to, to that need to be seen. And it's not to say that that doesn't exist when you're submitting to like a medium.com or if you're writing on your own blog, but what it does mean is that the sting of it is not as strong. And I realized too, like the output was important to me because it's one thing for me to write the words, but it's in the, like, I like to share the experience of my art. And so I can't do that if I keep getting rejection letters and being able to share my story in hopes that it helps other people. Um, and some of that can't be conveyed in like 800 words, between 800 and 1,000 words, you know? Like, yeah. I, like it allowed me the opportunity to share the experience in a real and raw way without someone else dictating how that experience should look and feel. To Write Love on Arms has always sold t-shirts as a way to help fund our mission. But the products we sell in our store do so much more than help us financially. Each piece of merchandise is a conversation starter. It spreads the Tuloha message to someone who may not have found out about us otherwise. So whether you wear our shirts, hats, hoodies, or rain jackets, we want to thank you for bringing a message of hope and help wherever you go. To see our latest styles, head to store.tuloha.com now and use the promo code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off your entire order. When you were posting or when you were kind of writing these essays, was this pre or um, was this before therapy in that experience or was it? Is it only after kind of going through that that you felt like this needs to be heard? Like what prompts you in this writing journey to kind of expose these your story, to own your truth, like you were saying? It was after therapy. But what I will say is like as, as much as therapy played a role in that, I think fatherhood was a was a really big part, probably the biggest part in me exploring the word, world of like essays. Because mm. I realized um, I was getting really, really anxious and nervous about fatherhood, like financially like emotionally, I was still working at the, uh, the, the job that I mentioned where I was servicing the forensic community. And so I wasn't making a lot of money and granted, I'm not making a lot of money now, but I'm making way more than I was before. And so with that, there was like the worry and concern of like, how am I going to raise this, this human in the world mm -hmm. without the income? And I, I, I remember being in the park and I felt like I wanted to harm myself. And I was like, what can I do in order to make this pain go away. Like I imagine like starting a fight with someone and then and like that leading to something or like me like me walking out into the street and just like letting whatever was going to happen happen. And what that then led to um interestingly enough was me writing a monologue that became like a series of monologues that are constructed for like this one man show that I've been working on. But that that monologue I wrote, I posted on medium.com. And that was around the same time Medium opened up the opportunity for folks to post outside of their, um, you can post on your mobile phone because I wasn't able to do that before. And so that gave me more access to, mm. to, to do the things that I felt like I needed to do. And then I started, I started posting a lot more. And then there was a situation that occurred between my co-parent and and her co-worker. A co-worker threatened her. And I remember being, being so infuriated by it. Um, 
and I, I wrote something. I wrote a piece that was um, basically like it, it was called "How Not Like Don't Be a Fuckboy." And granted, I say that with now recognizing that language, like the the fuckboy language, is kind of steeped um, in like a negative connotation towards like gay male community, which I didn't know at the time. I had a friend kind of check me on that, but at the time, that title and that storyline was about checking men and their abusive behavior. Um, and checking masculinity and patriarchy. Um, and that went viral. Like Huffington Post picked it up. There was like a whole, like, whole bunch of other publications picked it up. And that's kind of like started the bigger journey of me writing more about race, about my own trauma. Because, you know, like around the same time, we're, we're dealing with Ferguson. We're dealing with a lot of heat. Um, and so the writing gave me more things to, to chew on, mm-hmm. like the, in a way that mu- making music couldn't. Like I was writing rhymes, but I couldn't encapsulate what I was feeling in 16 bars and a hook and a verse, you know? Yeah. Wow. Can we go back to to the, one of those first posts that you talked about? Because um, I, I think you said some really important things there. So you're, your daughter's on her way, <laughs> Layla. Um, and so you're, how old are you when, when you are dealing with, and I don't know, would you call that depression in that experience? Like, is that the first time you kind of name that experience that way? Yeah, I was calling it, I was definitely calling it depression. Um, like kind of depression of like my circumstances and my situation. And it was around that period of time. And so at that point I was 33. Yeah, I was 33 years old. Um, kind of trying to process these, like these suicidal ideations. And then also to the feelings of like not being enough for this person. Um, and what can I do? Like, I can't do anything. I felt powerless, Mm. but like the writing was a way for me to kind of examine that from like a very different lens. Yeah. So you're feeling anxious and, and depression is kind of a part of your daily experience. And then you, in this post, if people haven't had a chance to read it yet, you talk about what it's like to, to call a suicide hotline. Um, can you kind of walk me through the the piece so people kind of get a sense of that if they haven't kind of encountered that part of your story yet? Yeah, absolutely. So I had been struggling for a few weeks with um, just a majority of different things, and it kind of all came to a head. I was uh, I remember being in the park, having a very difficult conversation, and and I remember being on the phone, like just yelling and like fighting back tears and I'm yelling at this person. I'm just like, what, like in my head, like what the fuck is going on? Like what, like, why is this happening to me right now? This very, very much like attacking myself about either like A, letting this happen and then B, being in a situation with this thing, like this, this stress and this anxiety feels like it's kind of taking over me. And so at the same time, I'm also having to pick up Lila. So I'm battling the idea of feeling, feeling the way that I'm feeling, but knowing that I have to be around my child and not wanting to bring that kind of energy around her because the 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 understanding of energies is really important mm. to me so i i leave the city i'm on the train i get on the bus and i'm like my hands are shaking i can't stop shaking my hands i'm like i need to talk to somebody mm. like i need to talk to, to somebody because i started feeling hot i started feeling like i wanted to jump off the bus like i literally was like i need to jump off the bus like open a window jump yeah. through a window was that the first time you'd ever felt that experience before yes I've had like a, a, a panic attack before, mm-hmm. and that was kind of what 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 I was describing when I was um when when I wrote the monologue that I mentioned. But this was different, like the mm-hmm. the shaking, the like the nerves, like the nervousness that I felt, and not knowing what to do. And it's like I need to talk to somebody because I I, I really do feel the need to not be here any longer, and I want to harm myself because I don't know what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. How it started was I, I tried to send a text to um this this hotline in New York City is made available where you can text like a mental health uh, person, professional, and they'll kind of try to, essentially they'll try to talk you off the ledge, right? And while I'm doing that, what I'm realizing is that A, it's they're not really responsive. And if they were, it wasn't, I could tell that it was like an automated response until I was going to get to a professional yeah. and it was taking too long. Yeah. And then where I'm at, where, where I was in the Bronx, I knew that the Montefiore Hospital was nearby. And I mean, working with the forensic population, working with the mental health population, I already knew the process. Like I would walk into intake. I would let them know that I wanted to harm myself or potentially other people. Um, and then that would open up the opportunity for me to be moved into the psych ward because that's what I wanted. Yeah. And But then I'm like, also, I have to pick up Lila. And so like I'm I'm dealing with all that. So when I get off the bus, I'm like, okay, well, f- fuck it, whatever. I'm going to call. I'm going to call Lifeline. And so I called the suicide hotline here and just having a person like, cause when I call, like, there's no identifying information. They're not mm-hmm. asking me 
she's not the the woman who I spoke to. This wonderful woman, um, and I forget her name, but she like first name. She gives me her first name. She didn't ask for any identifying information as far as like my name, anything else was concerned. And so, like just having someone affirm who I was. She was asking me why I was calling, and just listening. Literally just listening and saying, like, based on what I'm hearing, I think you're doing an amazing job as a father. Mm. And I just cried. I cried. I cried for like five, ten minutes straight. Um, and I was late picking up Lila, but it was just so it was like even now thinking about it, like it was such a such a warming experience. And the idea of being that close to what I felt like was the edge and have someone tell me, like, it's it's okay that you feel this way and I see you for who you are. Mm. You know, um, like that was enough, yeah. you know, that because I felt like I wasn't really getting that from not from other people, but from, I guess, maybe from the people that I wanted to hear it from. Yeah. How did you how did you have access to that number? Google. Google. Yeah, I Googled. Google is my best friend sometimes. <laughs> you know, it was like I want like having to Google search. And then it's always interesting when you see how Google auto populates because it auto populates based on based on like the like people searching a popular search. And so that came up quickly. But yeah, Google. It was Google. I think what's so interesting about what you just shared, and I'm really grateful that you have shared that with us, and um, we're going to have links to that specific essay in, in the show notes because I really think it's it's powerful and I think people need to hear what you've written but or read what you've written. But I'm, I think what's really interesting to me when I read it and when I'm hearing you kind of talk about it is that you, you kind of knew what you needed, um, but there was still this feeling physical thing that was happening. And so it's almost like when people know what they have access to, like, I wonder if that was the difference. I mean, you got to the hotline, but you kind of knew, well, you knew about choices, right? And then you were making these choices and you knew enough to kind of keep you from acting on, on the suicidal ideation. Have you ever thought about that kind of piece of it? Like, what if I didn't know any of these things? Like, have you ever thought about where that, how that might have changed the story a little bit? Or actually, to be fair, I haven't. I've never thought about it for me. I have thought about that kind of access in general for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like when we get into these conversations about ignorance, right, or a person not knowing a thing, and it kind of goes back to what we spoke about. I, I try to go into every situation, every conversation, with the cognizance of knowing that some people who have not, we all have biases and bubbles. And so I can't fault, I mean, I can fault a person, but it doesn't, I don't think that's, that's not loving behavior to fault a person for not knowing something. There are things that I don't know. Like if a person who works in finance came to me and had a conversation about some financial shit, I know some stuff, but their wealth of knowledge is just deeper than mine. So I have to be, I, I think it behooves me to be aware of that and to operate in the space of not everyone knows because yeah. not everyone has the access. And there are people in my community who don't have the access or honestly don't think that it's important to have access to the language because that's something that they've been reared on or they've been taught. Uh, and so we, there's a lot of unlearning, unlearning that has to happen. Um, in order for people to to receive the information, receive the language, and re- and be able to function in the space of doing the work, um, and knowing that there's work that needs to be done, yeah. as well. But like I can imagine not having that language and not being able to also look at my daughter and say, like Lila, you're mad, okay, and and it's okay for you to be mad. I want you to feel that it's okay to cry. I want you to feel okay to do that. Let's discuss why you're mad. You know, can you tell me why you're mad? Okay, you need to be, you want to be left alone? Cool. I'll leave you alone. Do whatever you need to do. Like giving her the space to feel the things that she's feeling and also being able to give her the language. Because she may not understand the language, but I want to at least give her the language so she can use it as a tool later. You know, I just need to, I need her to have the thing first. Yeah. Because I grew up without the thing. Yeah. And I think that kind of, and maybe that speaks a little bit too to the the book that you released um, last year, um, where you, you, kind of talk about the things that you just want her to have access access to, um, right? Like some of the experiences. So has that, has fatherhood been that kind of catalyst for you to like really find them for yourself, these tools? Absolutely. Absolutely. My, like Lila is by far my greatest teacher. She has taught me how to kind of dig deeper beyond the surface for things. Like I thought I was patient, but I could be a lot more patient. I thought I was loving, but I could be a lot more loving. I thought I was understanding or and compassionate. I could be a lot more of those things because I see her and she sees me. Like I like I let out this gasp um, last night when I picked her up from daycare and I was like, oh. And Lila's immediate response was, um, she's like, Daddy, what's wrong? And so part of that is me being able to sit with the thing and recognize it. 
and sit with that thing because she gives me the access and the space and the freedom to do so because I've given her the language, but she's given me the language too in a way that I wasn't expecting because fatherhood's allowed me the opportunity to do that, to investigate because I'm open to the process. And she's allowed me to be open to the process. That's awesome. I think that's a huge gift to give any child, frankly. Um, and it's it's kind of unique as there are probably parents listening. I'm actually a, a parent as well. I have a four-year-old. Yay. And yeah, and, and it's the one thing that I think I didn't anticipate, and I'd love to even kind of circle back with the conversation, is like, the transition into parenthood is very stressful and there's so much learning that you have to do. And then as soon as you feel like you get kind of the hang of one thing, they change and then you're changing again. And so um, it's interesting to me kind of even going back to your other, the story about um, when you called the the suicide hotline was like the balance that you have to like these choices you have to make about your own mental health like you were saying like you don't want you didn't want to bring that in front of your daughter in that moment but you also knew you had to go pick her up and like all of these choices that we have to now navigate when our lives circle or or kind of intersect with this small person that we're responsible for it seems to me like you've uh, been able to use it as a great teacher and I'm curious if you like ever anticipated that happening or if you knew of anybody who's been able to express that way? Cause I'm still learning that and it's really cool to hear you talking about it. So I'm just curious if this is kind of like, do you have anybody you're looking to that's helping you learn this or are you kind of just navigating it on your own? It's a little bit of both. Um, I, I think a lot of it is trial and error. Like I, I tell people I've treated, I've been, I've been treating a lot of like a science experiment for the past three years now, which is like how much love can you put into a thing, into a person mm. to see like what unfolds. Um, I think that's a great experiment. <laughs> you know, like I'm just curious. I'm like, I wonder what's going to happen, you know, because my mother gave me a lot of love, but she had the language, but she didn't give me tools. Because sure. like she was raising black boys in the Bronx in the crack era. Like she was worried about keeping a roof over our heads and giving us love. But like, what's the language and the tools look like so I can access the world in a different sort of way. And so my job feels like I, I'm creating a world for for her. And so I have to be mindful of that, I think, in, in the most in the most beautiful way possible. But like her godfather, John, he was a person who I think I was guided more by his principles and like as far as like his spirit was concerned, more so than like the language. Like there's a way that John walks in the world that I was very curious about. And it was less about asking John. John is a father to two at this point. And John was a father before I was, but it was just watching him walk, walk in the world with such peace and wanting that kind of peace more of that peace in the world and and asking myself, like, how can I get there? And so some of that was like Buddhist practice. Some of that was reading like Eckhart Tolle and like Deepak Chopra and like, like all these other individuals. But really a lot of it was the the self, the self investigation and the the willingness to be vulnerable in the spaces. Um, And then also being in like having that vulnerability received with love from like my brother, my, my big brothers and like my sister and like other people that I loved and cared about and having, and honestly too, black women, black women really gave me the space to like be vulnerable and have that vulnerability received openly and warmly, mm. which then gives, it's given me also the opportunity to do that with my child and give her the space, the space, the courage and the freedom to do the same thing with me. Yeah. Do you feel then, I mean, you, you mentioned women specifically, do you feel like men in the black community have like space to be vulnerable? Um, we're starting to see more of that, but I think there's a lot of attachment to patriarchy and keeping like defined rules for how men move about in the world by both black men and black women, Mm -hmm. to be completely fair and honest. Um, and so we're starting to seek more conversations surrounding that. I have a lot of male friends who are kind of also to having conversations about that. So part of that for me is also like, it's cool to see that happening, but, um, could, there needs to be more of that. Absolutely. What do you think in the current way that a man is understood keeps men often from reaching out? I think it goes back to, to, I think something we kind of touched on, which is like men are expected to perform certain, there's a certain like performative masculinity that's accepted. Um, So loud, abrasive, aggressive, like the alpha male, there's a certain kind of way we look at an alpha male, Um, like leadership roles. What does that look like as a black man or as a man in America or in the world? Granted, that changes culturally too. Like how we identify, like what's a strong Indian man might be different than what's what's a strong American man. What's a strong Nigerian, you know, like this yeah. this conversation surrounding that. But I think part of that is that there's an expectation that men are supposed to be a certain way, the same way women are expected to be a certain way. 
Um, so the showing of emotion is seen is is deemed a weakness. Being vulnerable is deemed a weakness. Being soft is viewed as as a slight more than it is viewed as a thing of worth celebrating. And so how how we navigate those conversations and how we choose the words that we use to choose to ascribe to a person and to a behavior is also part of the problem. Yeah. So it sounds like you do have friendships or relationships where you have space to share. I mean, you're sharing these writings publicly. I'm wondering, do those come into like those male relationships, friendships or mentorships or? It comes from all of those things. Like, and I think the writing has also opened more of that conversation for me to have with other men, with other people. So I, I think part of that is because I've been writing so much and being open about the conversation, it feels like it's also been facilitating that um, that conversation to happen as well for other people, you know? Yeah. And I think it'd be hard to not read your work and want to talk to somebody about the, the things you're sharing. I mean, it's it's true. And I think that's part of what To Write Love has always tried to accomplish Um is to just sharing stories that give people framework to, it doesn't have to be their story. It doesn't have to be identical. It doesn't have to reflect every bit, but it's the the experience kind of that you, that you read between the lines that the, the pain and loss and these big questions, I think people can relate to those topics. I mean, we all encounter them. And so when I even talk to people about the work of trait love on our arms, I talk about just the human experience, right? Like we're, we're trying to connect people to that um, outside of the word of just mental illness um, because it's mental health and it's, and that's a human, that's humanity, you know, we all face it. Um, But I do think it gives, and even something like this podcast gives people a chance to have one more uh, story to kind of help put their own story together. And so I, I thank you for sharing those things and thank you for being like an advocate and a voice that is not only talking about mental health, but you're talking, like you said, you're pushing into these other areas like fatherhood, masculinity, all of these topics that are so, you kind of have to push against them to kind of, to change and to reshape them. So thank you for those. I want to ask a little bit about if you could identify your writing this is kind of largely, but how would you say writing specifically has helped you if you could kind of encapsulate that? I think writing has given me breathing room. I think it's the best way to explain it. Writing Mm -hmm. has given me the opportunity to explore my spaces and explore my creativity and explore the world, really. When you think of oversharing, where do you kind of have boundaries or like where do you distinguish? I think we get that question or people wrestling with that question a lot. Like uh, when I'm sharing my story for the first time, what's oversharing versus like sharing, like you said, to drive a conversation? I mean, I think it depends, honestly, to be quite honest. I think that depends on the context and that's difficult yeah. to know, to, to, to discern that. But I think it, and part of that is the practice of being able to discern when, like when you're comfortable enough to share. Cause I don't necessarily believe in oversharing, but I feel like for me, I recognize what oversharing looks like. That might be different for you though, you know, or different to the, to the person that you're sharing the information with. So what I've recognized for me is like, I don't, I share things about Lila, but I don't share the specifics of what I'm going through as Joelle, maybe through fatherhood, but I don't talk in detail about my co-parenting relationship or whatever the case might be, maybe later. But for right now, it feels like that's, not where I want to be, but that might be different for somebody else, you know? So I I think there's room for that depending on who you are and where you are. If you could speak to yourself when you were struggling, what would you say? It's okay for right now. And it's hard right now, but it's okay. One thing that Buddhism has taught me, granted, I'm not practicing Buddhist, but the idea that pain is a part of the process, but like the suffering, like that's the option. Mm. Like the suffering comes when we cling and attach ourselves to a moment, whether that be good or bad, because we want this thing to end or we want this thing to continue. And everything is transient, everything keeps moving. And so, and everything is always shifting. So like, it's okay, like it's okay. And even if it doesn't feel okay, recognize that it, it there's room and opportunity for it to be if you're just open to it. Yeah. If you can be open to it, correction. Joel, this has been a really awesome conversation. And frankly, I wish we had like five more hours because I think we could just go back and forth and talk about so many um, so many cool topics and, and your take on everything has been really wonderful and, and we're so grateful for you. So thank you for your time. If we wanted to let people know how to find you and to get connected to your work, where can we send them? Um, you can find me on Twitter and IG, um, J-O-E-L-A-K-A-M-A-G. That's my Twitter and IG handle. You can also find me at the website, mydaughtermayhave.com. 
where you can find like my my writing, my performances, my music, all that other good stuff. That's awesome. And my book. Oh yes, your book, which is one year one year old today, correct? Yeah. Yes. And that is a book about things I will tell my daughter. Yes, ma'am, that is also correct. All right. Well, we're going to have a link to all that in the show notes. Joel, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the conversation. And um, I hope you get to celebrate your beautiful daughter today. Happy birthday, Lila. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to you and the team for being so awesome and like courageous and wonderful. Thank you again to Joel Daniels. You can find more about Joel's work, his newest book, and ways to connect with him in our show notes. We hope each episode is a reminder that your story is important, you matter, and you're not alone. We understand that so many of you listening might be struggling or know someone who is struggling with the issues that we've been talking about. We believe that help exists. Part of our mission is to connect people to the help that they need and deserve. You can find local mental health resources at our website, twloha.com and click the find help at the top of the page. Or if you need to talk to someone right now, you can always connect with our friends at Crisis Text Line. You simply text the word TWLOHA, that's T-W-L-O-H-A, to 741-741, and you'll be connected to a trained crisis counselor. It's free, confidential, and available 24-7. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more, we hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And if you can do us a favor, we'd really love for you to write us a review. It will help more people find this podcast and the mission of Twiloha. If you have any feedback or questions, please send us an email to podcast at twiloha.com. A big thank you to our friends at Copeland for the original music on this episode. This episode was produced by Mark Codgen with editorial support by Claire Biggs of Lord of Force and Becky Ebert and music assistance provided by James Likeness and Ben Titchener. I'm Lindsay Kolsch. Thank you so much for listening. To Write Love on Her Arms is a nonprofit movement dedicated to presenting hope and finding help for people struggling with depression, addiction, self-injury, and suicide. Twiloha exists to encourage, inform, inspire, and also to invest directly into treatment and recovery. You can find more information about Twiloha at twiloha.com.